Good morning all. Come on in if you're uh, out in the hall, make your way in. Last week we did the book of Romans and we're going to do something a little different this morning, which I will tell you in just a moment, but let's pray first. Our Father, thank you for this beginning of the Lord's day and I pray that you would um, be with us this day. Lord, our purpose here is to ascribe glory to you, to give you glory, to give you honor. And while we fully expect to receive from you this day, Lord, that is not our primary purpose, nor should it be. That would be a sinful reason to gather together so that merely that we may get something. Instead, we're here to give to you, Lord, and we give to you by learning, hearing, knowing you through your word. We give to you by acknowledging your greatness, your holiness, by taking time that you've given to us to bend the knee to you, to bend our minds, to think on holy things. And I pray that this day, Lord, we would work hard at worship, that we would exert effort, that we would be worshipers that are not passive, but that are active, that we would listen, that we would hear, that we would be in prayerful spirit, Lord, and be thankful to gather with your people. We pray that this Lord's day is pleasing to you in this local body. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What you see on the slide, Major Biblical Covenants 2, starting with the Mosaic Covenant, is precisely what we're going to do next week. So, uh, sorry guys, I threw you under the bus there. Uh, I want to do something a little bit different today. And I I thought maybe I'll just skip it. I don't know when I'll get to it again. So we're going to do it anyway. Um, I've asked several people, is this even going to be interesting to anybody? And one person said, well, to you. So there's at least one. Um, I'm thankful for that. Uh, There's always a balance between how how detailed and how uh, nuanced do you get with theology. And and we don't want to become what some have called a head church where... You're all about learning things that are so esoteric that you don't even know what you're talking about. Have you ever heard somebody preach and you, and you say, that was so amazing. I have no idea what he said, but it must be amazing because I couldn't understand any of it. So I never want to have the goal of not being clear, but neither do we want to reduce everything to the lowest common denominator, that, that the person who understands the least is the one we're aiming for. Um, I think when you come to grace, hopefully it feels like you're kind of drinking through a fire hose for a while and then you get caught up. And so what I'm going to do today is I want to just do a little talk uh, based in the book of Romans on the topic of the righteousness of God. I don't have any slides for this. This is just something I want to share with you and hopefully it's interesting to you. So if you're if you're doing BTI for credit, um, you can feel free to use this to help your uh, Romans Bible book review or one of your theology essays, um, particularly on the righteousness of God. And the reason I want to go through this is because the word righteousness in Scripture is so broad and it can be attributed to so many different things um, that I, I, I want to show you that in Romans there's a pretty specific focus um, for this. And this probably won't take the whole time, and so if we have a few minutes left over, I'll take some questions um, about anything. We haven't done a Q&A in a long time, so um, I'd love to do that if we have a little bit of time and just chat together for a little bit. So the key verse 
in Romans on the righteousness of God is Romans 1.17. For in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the phrase I want to hone in on in, in verse 17, standing alone is a is a, a gold mine of information or a landmine of difficulties, however you want to look at it. And I'm not going to go into all of those. But the key phrase I want to look into is the righteousness of God. And in English, the word of can mean a lot of different things, can't it? It, means, it can mean uh, coming from, it can mean attributed to, it can mean belonging to. And so of is a, a very general word. So when we say the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, that's, that begs the question, well, what does that mean? Some would say that in Romans, the righteousness of God is an attribute of God, that God is righteous. We would agree with that, that God is righteous. Others would say that it is righteous behavior engendered by God, that the righteousness of God is revealed the righteous shall live by faith, meaning that because you're saved, you're exhibiting righteous behavior. And again, we would agree with that, that that should be the case. So, yes, righteousness is an attribute of God. Yes, righteous behavior is something that should follow salvation. Is that the primary meaning, though? I would say no. I would say that the primary meaning of the righteousness of God in the book of Romans is a righteous standing given by God. A righteous position, a, a positional righteousness, we might call it that. Now, I want to spend some time on this and just kind of walk through almost chapter by chapter, just in, in broad overview, this idea of the righteousness of God. Because this is, let me put it this way. This is the difference between a lame gospel presentation and an accurate gospel presentation. Let me give you the lame gospel presentation. And, and by the way, uh, people come to faith in Christ via lame gospel presentations because the Holy Spirit does so anyway. And that's okay. Um, but the lame gospel presentation has to do with what God wants to do for you. God wants to give you a better life. God wants to uh, show you the way, whatever that means. God wants to be your best friend. Jesus wants to be your co-pilot and all of that. That, that one's absolute heresy, so we won't go there. But it, it's all about you and God partnering up and you, you're finally right with God um, in terms of your friends and, your, and God is now in your corner. This is a super dangerous gospel presentation because what it basically says is, oh no, my life is bad or there are things in my life that I'm not happy with. I need to get God in my corner. I need to, to have God be part of my life. Uh, you see this even with, with Hollywood uh, stars who claim to be Christians and I don't know the true state of their souls, but some of them who claim to be believers, uh, they, they speak in these terms. You know, the God was with me and, and God wanted me to get this part. I don't think God could care less whether or not somebody gets a part in a movie and that sort of thing. Uh, athletes, professional athletes, you see this all the time. God helped me to, uh, to score this touchdown. Really, what about the believer who you ran by to score the touchdown who was praying that you wouldn't score? So that, that gospel presentation is very 
man-centered, and it's, it's a lame presentation. Now, uh, in our church, we have people that have gone through what I call the ecclesiastical, uh, the ecclesiastical process. The ecclesiastical process is when you hear a lame gospel presentation and you end up at a church like Valley Bible. And you're there hearing baloney and junk and even heresy, but you're in the church and you're hearing about Jesus at some level and um, you're interested and maybe even the Holy Spirit has moved to save you. If the Holy Spirit has moved to save you and you're in a church like that, you get dissatisfied pretty quick because you realize you're hearing stuff that doesn't fit with what the, the gospel is. Then you move on to the Methodist church. Maybe we'll find something there because they're kind of stodgy and we, you know, maybe they'll, they'll give you something. Then you find out real quick, most of them aren't even saved and don't even know the gospel, including the pastors. So then you move on and you, and you make it to a, a relatively uh, orthodox, say, Southern Baptist church. And they do a nice job, but they're still pretty much uh, trying to pander to and cater to the unbeliever coming in the door. That's their goal. Um, and so you don't get taught. And after a while, you're just starving to death. And one day you type in Google Bible Church and Grace Bible Church comes up and you come and you start having your soul fed. That's the ecclesiastical process um, that, that lots of people go through. So does God use the lame gospel presentations? Absolutely. And, and I praise the Lord. I'd rather have somebody out there just talking about Jesus generally than denying his name altogether. Absolutely. But the righteousness of God takes you from the lame gospel presentation to the razor-sharp, precise presentation of the gospel. And here it is. God is holy. And part of His holiness is encompassed by the fact that He is perfectly righteous. That He is right in all that He does. He is perfect in all that he does. His holiness is encompassed by his, his moral perfection. His holiness is encompassed by his separateness, that God is other, that he is not like you, that he's invisible, that he's immortal, that he is unapproachable, that you can't find him if you tried. You can't speak to him. You can't see him. You can't communicate with him. You can't find him. He is unapproachable. He is unfindable. He is totally righteous and he will not let you find him because you're not righteous. And you're standing before God, before the judge of all the universe, before the judge of all things, your standing is that of guilty because you are not righteous, you are not holy, you are impure, you are a sinner. James 2.10 says that if you have broken one of God's laws, you are guilty of all of them. Why? Because to violate God's holiness in one part is to violate all of his character. And so God is righteous. He is separate. He is unapproachable. You are unrighteous. You are, you are separated from God. You, your standing before God is that of guilty. And there will be a day that the Bible calls the great white throne judgment where every single person who doesn't doesn't have the righteousness of God, will stand before God, and the Bible says that the books will be opened, and every single wicked thought, deed, and word that you have ever done will be exposed publicly. You will be condemned on the basis of those deeds, and you will be thrown into the lake of fire, because your standing before God is that of guilty, and He is a righteous judge who condemns the guilty rightly. 
But through Christ, God has offered to fulfill righteousness. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say, oh, that's okay. He's holy. Therefore, he must judge sin. His wrath is part of his goodness. His wrath is part of his character. He must judge sin. And so he has offered and he sent his son to stand in your place to become unrighteousness, to become sin for you, to trade his perfect life for your sinful life and to trade the wages of sin, which is death, and him taking it instead of you. And if you receive that by faith, if you believe that Jesus died and he rose again with full payment for every sin that you have ever committed and ever will commit, if you will believe that, then your standing, your official verdict goes from guilty and unrighteous to vindicated and righteous. That you now before God are seen as holy. You are seen as perfect. And somebody might say, but I'm not perfect. I know. Isn't that the amazing thing? Through Christ, God has credited him with all your sins as if you've never sinned. That's the whole purpose of baptism, that we die with Christ, we're resurrected in Christ. That's a precise gospel, that your standing as righteous before God is now secured. And if you want to tell them the the fancy term, that's the doctrine of justification that you have been justified. That is the center of the gospel. That, that is the, 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 the center point. That's the linchpin. That's what the Great Reformation was all about. The Great Reformation was all about justification. And so, that's why this is important. And I'm going to take just a few minutes because that's a, actually a, a simpler gospel presentation. And it's, it's uh, foolproof. Why is the lame gospel presentation not foolproof? Well, it's not foolproof, first of all, because it's not true. Um, But the second reason it's not foolproof is that you have to convince people that their lives are terrible. And frankly, there are some unbelievers whose lives are pretty good. You know, um, you know, look, you you know, God can give you so much. Uh, I made $800,000 last year. What else can God give me? Um, Well, God could help all your problems. I, I hire everybody to solve my problems. I don't have any problems. So you have to convince people that they're in trouble. Um, and they won't believe you. But you can convince them that they're sinners. You can convince them that, uh, well, I've given to the church. doesn't matter. You're standing before God is unrighteous. Well, I've done good things. I've helped little old ladies across the street. doesn't matter. You're standing before God is unrighteous. Wait a minute. Does, are you saying that no matter what I do, my standing before God is unrighteous? Yes. He saved us. Not by righteous works that we have done. You can do nothing to please God. And you can read to them from Romans 10 about all the ways that you have displeased God. Now, all the stuff and all the worldly happiness they have is, is pointless. So that's why this is so important. Okay, that's our introduction. It's because it's, it is the gospel. So I'm just going to kind of uh, pop through some, some uh, main points in most of the chapters in Romans. And you don't have to turn to Romans. I'm not going to. The theme of righteousness 
our right standing before God is huge in Romans. It's, it's found pretty much in every chapter. When he speaks, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, he's referencing not so much an attribute of God, again, as he's referencing the legal standard that God has revealed through his law. Paul introduced the idea in 117, which I read, and he states that the righteousness of God is connected to faith, and in that uh, the righteous man will live by his faith. How can I live forever? You must have faith in the righteousness that God alone can provide. And what we have here, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, about verse 20, is a courtroom argument. And this courtroom argument is to convince every group of people on earth that they are utterly hopeless in trying to please God. Paul first levels charges against the Gentiles, that they're guilty. Now, what, what do, what's the common argument you hear uh, today, and we've heard this for years and years. Oh, but what about the people who have never heard the gospel? What about the people that, uh, that didn't have a Bible and so forth? Well, part of that argument is that God is sovereign and he does whatever he wants. That's another topic. But Paul says they're without excuse. God has revealed himself in general revelation and he's revealed, themselves, he's revealed himself in the hearts of mankind. That every human being has a conscience and that they logically ought to be searching, where did this come from? Why do, I, why do I genuinely believe that murder is wrong? Why do I believe that theft is wrong? Why do I get angry at things that are wrong? Why do I even believe there's such a thing as right and wrong? In other words, God has put a measure of morality in every person such that they have a conscience and that they are looking to find the source of that conscience. And so Paul tells the Gentiles that they have no excuse. They knew God, and they didn't honor him. How did they know God? General revelation. You look up in the sky, look at anything in nature, and you say, somebody made this. Somebody made this. It wasn't uh, until the mid-1800s that anybody had the silly idea that, that things happened by chance. That, that was ridiculous. So they can look at nature, they can look at their own conscience. God gave them over then to their own desires and passions and allowed them to experience the natural consequences of their sins. And Paul in chapter 1 lists sins including unrighteousness, wickedness, evil, murder, malice, haters of God, arrogant, disobedient. Are we today seeing mass quantities of people that God has given over to where their minds don't even work right, their brains don't work? Yes, People who are denying that there are, are, there's anything other than two genders, two sexes. The, the arguments are ridiculous. You have Supreme Court nominees who refuse to say what a woman is. It's silly because God has given them over and now they're so depraved, so turned upside down that what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. And so Paul levels the Gentiles. None of you have an excuse. You're all guilty before God. Then he levels charges of guilt against the Jews. Now, what would be their problem? Their problem would be, well, I'm descended from Abraham. Therefore, I'm okay. And God will, will accept me. Well, Paul accuses them of breaking the very law that they say justifies them. And he gives specific examples of ways they regularly break the law of God. And he says that a real Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly with a circumcised heart. And Paul goes on even to say that the unrighteousness of the Jews 
is a contrasting demonstration of how righteous God is in his standard of perfection. In other words, he tells the Jews, you want to know how righteous God is? You're the exact opposite. You're, you're just as unrighteous as God is righteous. That's a tough thing to tell a Jew who's proud of his heritage. And so Paul closes his argument for the guilt of all mankind by stating in chapter 3, verse 9, that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under sin. Nobody has special privilege. And he gives this famous scathing litany. He, he quotes or cites the Old Testament in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, that not one person is righteous, means they don't meet God's standard. They're, they're in the guilty category. No one seeks to know God. What does that mean? It means that if somebody is seeking God, God has, has sought them first. He says that all are useless. That goes against our self-esteem culture, doesn't it? Well, I matter because whatever. Well, the Bible says, no, you're useless. If you're not a worshiper of God, you're wasting air. He says, no one does good. Well, what about all the good things? No, the Bible says no one does good. But I did these wonderful things. No, it's sinful because you think those wonderful things will please God when they won't. That makes it wrong. That's, we've used this illustration before. It's like the man who murdered one of your family members coming over to mow your lawn to, and say, look at the good things I've done for you. You're going to throw the lawnmower at him because it's repulsive, it's offensive. Paul says that the behaviors of mankind show unrighteousness. He says that mankind does not fear God. And he finishes this long section in chapter 3 by stating that no one will meet God's standard of righteousness by any attempt to keep the law. It's impossible that all the world is accountable to God for not meeting his perfect standard, legal standard of righteousness. And, and Paul goes on to say that every mouth will be closed. Every mouth will be closed. One of the most powerful gospel sermons I ever heard was by a saved Jew by the name of Dr. Marvin Rosenthal. And that, those are sermons in Romans where I first understood the gospel. And he took the phrase, every mouth will be closed, pretty literally. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. And I've said this before. I'll say it again till the day I die. It may be the last thing I think about. That any unbeliever who would stand before God and say, but I've done, that God will say, shut up. But I've been, shut up. But I've done, shut up. That we have a wrong assumption that somehow we'll stand before God and give a defense. That assumes he'll let you speak. He's not going to let you speak. At the great white throne judgment, there are no defense attorneys. And there is no procedure for defense. It is all condemnation. After giving this airtight case of the condemnation of mankind under sin, then Paul shifts to the good news of the gospel. You read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Uh, through most of chapter 3, it is meant to bring you to your knees in hopelessness. That you can't escape. Well, I'm, I'm a Jew, that's, I'm done there. I'm a Gentile, I'm done there. I can't do any good works. It brings you to your knees. And we get to the, the theme of the gospel and it centers on righteousness. Again, the righteousness is the standard to which God holds men. And it becomes the position that he gives you. And so he transitions with those two great words in chapter 3, verse 21, but now. This is where the bad news turns into the good news. But now, and he explains that the righteousness of God can't be attained through the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
He explains the hopelessness of any other way that every human has come short of the glory, uh, the righteous standard of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the blood of Christ was given as the propitiation for sin so that Christ could justify those who would have faith in Him. Now, what is the faith? I, I, I know we talk about this in general terms, but I think here's one way to think about faith. Faith is simply believing with all of your heart that when God says, I will, if you repent, switch places with my son and you and that his righteousness will be credited to you and your sin will be credited to him at the cross and believing that with all of your heart. Uh, How much faith does that take? It takes enough faith to close your eyes for the last time on this earth and believe it. And so that's what we're having faith in. Faith in God that he's going to keep his word. And so Paul emphasizes that justification is by faith, not by any good works according to the law. In chapter 4, Paul is speaking to the Jews who would read Romans and he uses a long illustration of justification by faith in the life of Abraham, the the patriarchal hero of Israel. He, He quotes Genesis in reminding the Jews that Abraham was not justified by his own righteous good deeds, but he was justified by his what? By his faith. And so any of them who say, well, but I'm descended from Abraham. That's not how Abraham got saved. Abraham wasn't descended from Abraham. Abraham had to have faith. And so does every saved person. And so as a result, God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. We've talked about that before. And by the way, in chapter four, Paul throws in a quote from King David as well, who declared that the blessed man is the one who has had his sins forgiven. That there has to be repentance, there has to be forgiveness. And Paul then reminds the Jews that the justification of Abraham had nothing to do, by the way, with uh, one of the things that Jews bragged about, and that was their circumcision. When did Abraham get saved? Prior to his circumcision. Circumcision was merely the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It wasn't a spiritual means for anything, and obviously we know that because only men could get saved if that was the case. It's just a sign. In chapter 5, Paul gives the results of being justified by faith apart from works. What's the result? That we have peace with God through Christ. God is no longer at war with him because of sin. One of the themes of chapter 5 is is the dawning realization that you were born at war with God. That means there's no neutral people. That nobody can say, well, I'm not not anti-God. What did Jesus say? If you are not for me, you are what? Against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. The believer is given assurance of his salvation, chapter 5, verse 2. He's given hope in the midst of trials, chapter 5, verse 3. And Paul explains that Christ died to provide justification for sinners, even while those were still helplessly in their sin. That Christ died for us even while we were his enemies. That's phenomenal. Not only is the believer saved from his sin currently, he is saved from the future wrath of God against him. And in chapter 5, Paul reminds his readers that through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. And in contrast, through one man, Christ, we are given uh, reconciliation because he paid the penalty for sin. That's why Christ is often called the second Adam. He undid what the first Adam did. In chapter 6, Paul begins to explore the daily life implications for one who's been made righteous by trusting in Christ, that we're to present ourselves to God as a righteous person. 
that we see even our very bodies as instruments to demonstrate the righteousness of God. They don't belong to us. The one who was once a slave to sin is now a slave of obedience, a slave of righteousness. That you're compelled and you desire and you, you, you yearn to do what a righteous person does because you have that position of righteousness. In chapter 7, Paul drives home the point of righteousness received by God uh, by faith apart from the law and he gives an example of a woman under the law of marriage, but when her husband dies, she's no longer bound by that law. And so Paul explains that because righteousness has come by faith in Christ, the believers released from bondage, released from the obligation of the law, and released from the, the, the trap of the law, the, the, the death of the law. And then in chapter 8, chapter 8 is like the mirror contrast. It's the, it's the opposite of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, you get massive condemnation. In chapter 8, how does it start? There is therefore now no what? Condemnation. What does that mean? This is, this is that razor-sharp, precise gospel presentation that you're telling somebody, do you understand that if you would repent of your sin and if you would receive by faith the forgiveness that God has given through Christ and you would receive the justification where Christ has switched places with you, do you understand that for all eternity you will never, ever, 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 ever one time be condemned by God for your sin and the great white throne judgment I just told you about. If you're there at all, it'll be in the stands with 50-yard line seats and a bowl of popcorn. But you will not be on the chopping block. So that's a, that's a major thing from chapter 8. He says in verse 2, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? It's the law that says because you're a sinner, you're going to sin. Because you're a lawbreaker, you are going to break the law. That's been a debate for a long time. Do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? It's a really easy answer. Yes. You were born a sinner. You are going to sin. That is a, there, there's no one who made it to age seven and then their mother said, go clean your room. No. Oh, that was my first one. That's never happened. Except for Jesus. Must have been very frustrating to his siblings because Jesus uh, was perfect at all times. But now because of Christ, the spirit of a believer is made alive. And what's, we said this last week, what's a huge theme in chapter 8? It is the spirit of God. And by the way, the spirit of man. Our spirit made alive by the spirit of God. Now in chapter 9, Paul turns to Israel. He expresses his great love for the Jews. He expresses sorrow at those who were perishing under the law, who thought they could make themselves righteous by obeying the law, but that's a hopeless cause. Paul makes it very clear that the true Israelites are the ones who will be saved by faith. And that has always been the case, by the way. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul quotes... Habakkuk 2.4. Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by their faith. Why is he quoting Habakkuk? The situation in Habakkuk was that God was telling uh, the nation of Judah and Jerusalem through Habakkuk that the Chaldeans were coming. I'm going to take a little side note here. The Chaldeans are on their way. This fierce and horrible people, and they're going to kill and maim and murder and they're going to carry people off and this would be uh, likely the first invasion of 605 BC and Habakkuk at the end of Habakkuk says that that 
picture was so terrifying to him that his knees shook and his stomach hurt and his lip quivered. He had a physical reaction to God telling him that this horrifyingly violent nation was going to come against them. But in Habakkuk 2, God gives promises and he basically the, the promise basically is against Babylon, against the Chaldeans. That once God is done using them to judge Israel, he's going to turn his sights on them and say, how dare you come against my people? Because he's sovereign and he's allowed to do that. Isaiah 10 talks about that sovereignty that God uses nations to judge his people and then he smites those nations for daring to touch his people. But in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, Habakkuk receives a promise about the faithful in the land, those who have a genuine internal faith in God. And he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And put that in an Old Testament context. It's, we, we quickly apply the new covenant to that. In the Old Testament context, the righteous shall live by faith means they'll survive. They'll live. That was for the Jew. That was their primary hope was to live in that land. And so there's reason to believe, and I, I read an entire um, master's thesis on this topic. There's reason to believe that Habakkuk received a promise that those with true, genuine faith would not be killed. Now, how does Paul take that? The New Testament never takes an Old Testament verse out of context, ever. So what is he saying in chapter 1, verse 17? The righteous will live by faith. Yes, they will survive. Survive what? Survive the judgment of God. They'll survive. They'll live for all eternity by faith because they have a real internal reality of faith. And so that's what in chapter 9, Paul is, is getting at. That true Israelites are the ones saved by faith, just like in the days of old. They'll be the remnant of the nation who accept the Son of God by faith. And Paul goes so far as to say that the Gentiles who attain righteousness by the only way of faith have, have outdone the Jews. They've outdone the Jews. They pursued The Jews have pursued righteousness by means of the law and they can't meet the standard. But the Gentiles at this time in the church... Church's history are getting saved by faith and the Jews need to follow suit. And so because the Jews didn't pursue righteousness by faith, they're falling short. Then in chapter 10, still concerning Israel, the theme of righteousness is very thick in the first few verses in particular. Continuing to speak of Israel, Paul reminds them that they, they tried to be self-righteousness. They self-righteous. They didn't subject themselves to God's righteousness, but they, they tried to be righteous on their own through the law. He says it has to be attained by faith. And he synthesizes this theme in Romans 10, 9 and 10 when he explains that confession and belief in the saving work of Christ results in righteousness, that legal, innocent standing before God. Paul reminds that being a Jew doesn't help in this regard. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. Only whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be made righteous. And then skipping ahead to chapter 14. In chapter 14, Paul gives instructions concerning those Jews who are still clinging to the law, still clinging to the old customs. Now he's sensitive to the transitional nature of their new faith. And he gives freedom to continue some of the eating and some of the day-observing customs. That Hey, if you still want to observe a new moon festival, if you still want to observe uh, the, 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 the Feast of the Booths, then fine. No problem. But it won't save you. In fact, we could show instances of the Apostle Paul keeping the law, but he never once said that the law would save him. There's a transitional time, and, and we would understand this. 
He ends that discussion in chapter 14 by reminding the readers that the kingdom of God is not keeping rules about eating, drinking, and certain days, but the kingdom of God is righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is based in righteousness. So, let me pull all this together. Paul develops the theme of righteousness. He gives some truths, and I'm going to give you seven of them. He gives seven truths. That first of all, righteousness is the standard of perfection to which God holds men. That's the standard. That you must be as righteous as God is. Second, it's not something you can earn. It has to be given by God. No one can earn righteousness. And, and I've even heard the argument, okay, theoretically, what if from this moment on, I don't sin one time? Doesn't that make me righteous before God? That is a very simple answer to that. What about all the sins before? They're still there. They still exist. They didn't, where did they go? They're still there. So it's not something you can earn. It must be given. Third truth. It's offered freely to those who will have faith in the saving work of Christ. The righteousness of God, the right legal standing before God is offered to any who would have faith. Can you, I don't know if we can even wrap our minds around this. There is a heavenly courtroom, if we want to put it that way. I believe that Revelation 20 uh, and 21 together teaches that uh, the melting down of the elements and uh, before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, that the great white throne judgment happens between those. Because Revelation 20 says that all the dead were gathered before God and there was no place for them to go. In other words, there isn't a place. There isn't physical space for them to stand in that's not before God. And that's kind of mind-blowing to think about that. But think about this. In that courtroom, theoretically, there are books waiting to be opened with your name on them. And inside those books are every single sin you have ever committed. And they're waiting to be opened. Here's the mind-blowing part. That by bending the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and with a trembling mind and a humble heart saying, I know those books exist. I know I will stand before you and I know you will read to me every sin I've ever committed and I know I will rightly be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Here's the mind-blowing part by simply saying, would you erase those sins and would you let Christ pay for them instead so that I could be the one whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And there are no books. If there were books, they're blank. That by taking a moment in time to repent at that level of humility, that things in heaven change from a human standpoint. That's mind-blowing. That's the precise razor-sharp gospel. That you're changing your position before God. And it's a, it's a phenomenal thing. Fourth truth. This offer is open to Gentiles as well as Jews. I, I know we talk about that a lot and you, and you might be asking, how does that apply to me? I, like, I don't go to anybody in Starbucks and say, are you a Gentile or a Jew? You know, I, I don't do that. Um, it'd be kind of weird. It'd be funny if they said, well, actually, I'm Jewish. Then that would be a, a fun conversation. How do we apply that? Well, from, from the Jewish standpoint, the Gentiles were the least likely to be saved on planet Earth. 
they're hopeless. And that's why Paul even shames the Jews in chapter 9 by saying, actually, the Gentiles are doing better than you because they're coming to Christ by faith and you're still trying to keep the law. They've, they've outstripped you. They've outrun you. you. They've left you in their dust spiritually. The encouraging thing for us is you could use this illustration with an unbeliever because an unbeliever might say, I've done too much. I, I'm too far gone. And you could say very simply, did you know that in the Bible, some of the Jews thought that just because they were, they were part of God's chosen nation that they were automatically saved and they looked down on, on the Gentiles? They used to equate Gentiles with dogs. I thank you, God, that I'm not a dog and I especially thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And yet God saves Gentiles. He saves the worst of the worst. So that's how you can apply that in the gospel presentation. Here's a fifth truth. Jews should have zero confidence in their self-righteousness based solely on being Israelites. Most Israelites are going to perish in their sins. And this is the, the key truth in Romans 9, verse 6, that Israel, all of Israel is not Israel. What does that mean? Remember, we've used the two circles that the big circle is every person who has ever been descended from Abraham and the smaller circle inside is every person ever descended from Abraham who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and had his, had his standing before God changed. That smaller circle, that's true Israel. That's true Israel. A sixth truth, through faith in Christ, only is a Jew a true Jew indeed. And I, I think that um, our, our wonderful covenant theologian brothers, they, they trip over this truth. And I, I think there's a tendency in theology, ironically, to simultaneously make things more complicated than they need to be and also to oversimplify. Those are two, uh, two extremes that we want to avoid. The oversimplification goes something like this. So are you saying that there are two peoples of God? No. That's a straw man argument. You're setting up an argument that I don't believe and telling me I believe it. What I'm saying is, what the Bible says is that there is ultimately one people of God. There's a headliner part of those people called Jews. They're the capital people, so to speak. And it is through them that Christ came, so we ought to be thankful to them. The book of Isaiah says that that at the end of the Great Tribulation, the Gentile kings and queens of, of the world who are saved will be bringing Jews back home, making sure they get home. Uh, it literally says that carrying children on their hip, whether that's literal Jewish children or, or symbolic for helping them get home. There's no problem there. You look all the way to the end of the Bible and you have New Jerusalem with the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth bringing their glory, bringing their tribute into New Jerusalem which of course is in new Israel. The Bible never uses the term new Israel, but if you have a new earth and on it is a new Jerusalem with a bunch of nations, what are you going to call the the new nation that it's in? It's not new Canada, it's new Israel. So there's no problem there. It's It's a gloriously diverse and intricate and variation that God has given in mankind. You will be you, and you will be, uh, you will be the you that God made you to be, represented by different nations. That's phenomenal. And you say, well, but I'm an American, which means I belong to like 80 nations uh, genetically. You know, like if anybody asks me, who are you descended from? I, like everybody. I, I don't know. 
So I don't know how God's going to work that out, but he is. But what a glorious thing. And, and the book of Isaiah is very clear that Gentiles are going to love to hang around a Jew. That 10 men will go to a Jew and say, teach me the truths of God. That the saved Jew will be the ultimate Bible teacher. Because they're coming from an understanding of the word of God given to them by God. So there, it's, not, it's not going to be a problem. And one last truth. The believer in Christ has absolute confidence that his righteous standing as being declared innocent will continue on to eternity. That's so important. That is the basic difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. Catholicism says they believe in justification, but it's a process that you may or may not complete. And Protestantism, or we would say the biblical gospel, believes that justification is a one-time event and there is therefore now no condemnation ever for all time. I was saddened a number of years ago and I read this book as a, as a young man and, and I believe he was well-intended, but uh, Billy Graham wrote a book on suicide and there were some good and useful things in there, but his theological position, and ironically, Billy Graham always said, I'm not a theologian, I'm a preacher. That's a whole other discussion. I don't think you can be one without the other. But he, his position in that book was that since suicide is a sin and that's the last thing you do on this earth, then you're going to go to hell because of that. And that did not bring comfort to Christians who have had family members who are Christians who have committed suicide. There's a lot of different reasons for suicide um, and you don't know what they all are. Um, and again, it's a, it's a horrible sin. But what about that person? What if your last act on this earth is sinful? That's possible, right? Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you let loose a litany of four-letter words that you know you shouldn't have and somebody T-bones you right then in your home in heaven. I don't know, maybe an angel will say, well, that was a nice entrance. <laughs> but you're there. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation. That sin was already forgiven. How many sins had you committed when Jesus said it is finished? None of them. Right? So how many were forgiven? All of them. Past, present, and future. So I hope that talking about the righteousness of God, I said we'd have time left over. We have two minutes or so. Um, I hope that the righteousness of God is important to you. It's important to me. It's the, it's the, it's the centerpiece of the gospel. It's connected to atonement. It's connected to everything. Without the righteousness of God, the, the right standing that he gives us, the gospel is not the gospel. So I wanted to take that little extra time and I, I would encourage you sometime. Um, I'm not a big Bible marker, mostly because I preach from the Bible that I have my quiet times in. And so when I'm, when I'm preaching and I see a bunch of notes to myself, it's really distracting to me. So I try to keep a clean Bible, but I have other Bibles that I have marked up like crazy. I would encourage you to find a Bible you're willing to mark up and read Romans in one sitting with a highlighter and highlight everything about the righteousness of God. Then get a different color and highlight everything about the grace of God. Then get a different color, highlight everything about the law and get a different color and highlight everything about the spirit. By the time you do that three, four times, you will know the book of Romans and you'll understand what it means. So that's a great way to study the word. Well, let's take a couple of questions. I've told you everything I know about the righteousness of God so you can ask other questions and that's fine too uh, for just a couple minutes here.
We'll start over here. The first side to raise their hand will categorize as the sheep. Yeah, Logan. I would call it incomplete to say Jesus, uh, I've even seen billboards, Jesus died for your sins. Nobody knows what that means. Why did he have to die because I went to a bar on Saturday night? That makes no sense to me. Um, that, that is not the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Okay, you explain that, that you are, you are under the condemnation of God right now and the wages of sin is death. And you can't pay that. Therefore, Jesus came and died in your place to pay that payment. Okay, if you stop there, you can get saved. But it's still primarily, phew, fire insurance at this point. You take it a step further that you are now seen by God as perfect, as righteous, as holy. That's your standing. You're not actually righteous. That's why we call it imputed righteousness. It is credited righteousness. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ. You're not righteous. You will be. Then you take him into eternity so that when you stand before God, when God looks at you, he will see his son and he will see that you have had your sins paid for and he will say, welcome home. And so you take him into eternity. But um, we want to go beyond the fire insurance. Phew, I'm gonna, I have my sins forgiven. It's you're no longer an offense to a holy God. What is the primary sin for which mankind will be condemned. It is failure to glorify God. That's the primary sin. Because the chief end of man is to do what? Give God glory. And we fail to glorify God. And so it's not just, salvation is not fire insurance. It's you're switched over from being someone who can give no glory to God. He won't let you. You can't be an unbeliever and say, I'd like to glorify God. Really, that assumes that he wants you to try. And he doesn't. You get switched from that over to being a worshiper, somebody who gives God glory. And so, it's, so you have to take it further, um, I think, which is, by, by the way, that's why the um, book of Ephesians says that, uh, that uh, angels uh, are kind of blown away by the gospel because the angels have seen how horrible you are. And then they see you get saved. And, and this guy who was drinking himself to death on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, every, every week, he was beating his wife, he was cheating on his taxes, doing all this. Now he's showing up to church and with a tear in his eye, singing, great is thy faithfulness. Angels are like, boom! What is that about? In fact, the book of 1 Peter says that these are things in which angels long to look. They don't know what it means to be saved because salvation was never offered to the angels. So, good question, thank you. What else? Yes, Emily. So, and maybe it's, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but if, like, a mind's been given over to, like, those who are, you know, sin, and God gives their mind over, um, is that also kind of the same thing as having a demonic spirit? Uh, You know, Satan has lots of different tactics. God giving the mind over is just uh, the, the idea of, we have a natural conscience, 
And you think about this, this is an odd distinction, but there are unbelievers that believe a lot of the same things we do. That they believe transgenderism is horrible. They believe that a family consists of a man, a woman, and children. They believe in traditional marriage and all of this. And so to a certain degree, they're still operating under the conscience that God has given them. The giving over of the mind is taking away that, that conscience, which is where you get totalitarianism, where you get Nazism. This is where people who used to sit, sort of be reasonable are perfectly fine with seeing millions of babies murdered. Because they're, they're, they, they're not thinking straight. Um, that conscience that used to operate in them has been taken away. Um, I don't think a demonic spirit is necessary for that. Um, but God certainly allows uh, the use of demonic spirits. But you just take away the natural conscience that, that they have and they act like demons themselves. So, good question. Let's do one more. Maybe two. Yes, John. Yes, <laughs> that's, yes. Um, uh, particular, and, and every sin is a sin of the heart. So um, it's, it's the heart attitude that is, that is what matters. Um, the heart attitude is uh, selfishness. Um, abortion is motivated by selfishness. It's motivated by, I, I want to do what's convenient for me. It's also... A, Abortion is the result of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is considered in Scripture basically the ultimate affront against God, the ultimate idolatry of taking something he created and twisting it for my own purposes. So uh, if sexual immorality was erased, then abortion is erased as well. Um, so, yep, absolutely. One more question. Yes, Joe. That is, that, that's beautiful. You know, um, my dad was memorizing Romans 8. Um, he used to, he used to, my dad was old school. He took, um, he took manila folders and wrote scriptures on them, hand, hand wrote, and then he would take them on his walk. That's, he was like an office junkie, so he had office equipment. And manila folders, like you say, you say the word manila folder. And my dad, would, I just love those. They're, they're so wonderful. And he had all of Romans 8 handwritten on a manila folder. And, um, the, the day he died, uh, he had written on it, just finished. So he just finished memorizing Romans 8. He had said it successfully. Then he drove to work and was killed in a car accident. So what a way to go. Having uh, just thought about, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're out of time. I know we could do this for a long time. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for this beginning to our Lord's Day. We just think about the... Uh, the knowledge of God given through Romans and the stunning truth that we who are sinners, probably all of us have sinned since the sun has come up today. And yet our standing before you is that of imputed righteousness, that when you see us, you see the righteousness of your dear son, Jesus Christ, that our robes have been washed, that we have been made white as snow, that we are clean before you. May we celebrate that fact this day, Lord. May we rejoice in the gospel and be thankful to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening.